So friends, last week we were in um, the, the part right before Chase read, in, uh, and I was supposed to preach this section as well. It's on submitting to governing authorities, and, and in this section in particular, Peter moves on with the same word, hupotasso in the Greek, to talk about submitting even to uh, s- s- servants and slaves in the ancient Near East to their masters, um, even, even to those that are unjust. And so if last week was, and, and, uh, and having, sp- I was supposed to cover that last week, just ran out of time, and so I said, hey, let's just preach it this week. So if last week submitting to governing authorities, even those, I mean, at the time Nero, the evil Emperor Nero was the one that was um, the governing authority in Rome. And so Peter is saying to the church in Turkey, he's saying, submit, submit to the governing authorities. There's power there. Um, and he, and he co- points us to Jesus Christ. And um, if that was an unpopular and a tough message, certainly in our culture where it's all about self-assertion and our country was founded on independence, um, you know, don't tread on me. We see those flags in Texas. We're very, very independent people. Um, we, we're, we're told to assert ourselves and follow our hearts. And um, my, my personal favorite from, from my kids and just from kids in general, I remember saying this a ton when I was older, you're not the boss of me. Um, this is a very, if, if last week was, was somewhat uncomfortable and unpopular, this is a very counter, if you're telling me to do these message, how am I supposed to live um, my best life now, Peter, if you're telling me to do these things? So the question really here, um, we see right away in verse 18 um, of servants and slaves to masters is what is Christian, this is put by Jer- Karen Jobes, the commentator at a Wheaton, what is Christian responsibility toward evil regimes and social injustice? Um, so in verse 18, like I said, Peter takes this being submissive to the governing authorities to the next level, and he takes it to a, a very, at least a more personal level. Don't just serve and honor emperors and governors, slaves, serve and honor your master, those who sometimes abuse you. He says, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Um, the same can be said here that was said uh, about submitting to governing authorities. P- again, Peter uses the same Greek verb, and he uses it in our text for next week at the beginning of chapter 3 for wives submitting to husbands. Um, and he ties it all into the Lord and his submission within the Godhead and then what he came to do here on earth, which we'll end with. Um, but submitting to governing authorities, even ones we disagree with, even unjust ones. But, you know, slave revolts in the ancient Near East were common and unsuccessful by and large. Christ never calls us to fight fire with fire. Far more effective in this culture was to, because um, one question you're going to be asking is, well, is it just, is he, is he just saying submit to, is, is he, is he rubber stamping the institution of, of slavery? And, and that's far from the case. But it was far more effective in this culture um, to serve masters, just and unjust, as unto the Lord. And let me explain a little bit about what I mean. This sort of Christian excellence and submission, even in the face of injustice, both to governing authorities and in personal sort of slave-master relationships, eventually what it did over the centuries is it helped to end uh, slavery in the ancient world. And it's done so in the modern West as well. First in the UK, um, through, largely through the efforts of the par- parliamentarian Wil- William Wilberforce, um, and then here in the USA. So another commentator, Craig Keener is his name, he's, um, he, he writes this. He says, no ancient slave war was successful. I'm going I'm to say that again. No ancient slave war was successful. And abolition was virtually impossible in Peter's day, except through a probably doomed, bloody revolution. 
in this situation, Keener says, it was far more practical for a pastor, so Peter in this case, right, writing to the churches in Turkey, for a pastor to encourage those in this, in this situation to deal with it constructively until they could gain freedom. In other words, what is Keener arguing for here? He's arguing that Peter is playing the long game as he's writing to these churches in Turkey. He's playing the long game toward helping free slaves and abolish slavery. He's telling them to, because telling them to revolt would have led to bloodshed, and it would have been, it would have been, it would have led to repression, it would have been unsuccessful. Telling them to submit to even unjust masters would have brought glory to God, because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And in so doing, he bought us our salvation, right? Um, It would have brought some masters to place their faith in Jesus as Lord as they saw servants and slaves acting in such a way, especially as they were mistreated and turning the other cheek and and doing excellent work and being respectful. One thinks about Joseph in the Old Testament, for instance. Um, It would have have brought some to place their faith in Jesus as Lord. And they would have said, man, Jesus, the, the God you serve is real. And they would have seen the dignity in this slave. And the lack of stratification in Christianity and the fact that slaves were actually quite esteemed. They were on par with anyone else, with rulers. And in the long run, it would have helped erode the institution of slavery in society. And in fact, we know that it did just that. Um, By the 4th century, let me just give you a glimpse. By the 4th century, 300 years after um, this was written, Gregory of Nyssa, a a pastor and theologian, comments in a sermon that he preaches on 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 the phrase, I bought, so he's commenting on this phrase, I bought male and female slaves. So slavery is four, three, 300 years later in the 4th century still exists in the ancient Near East. But at this point, he's preaching, and li- listen to what he writes. He writes, for what price, tell me, what did you find in existence worth as much as this human nature? What price did you put on rationality? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he's quoting, of course, from the first chapter the Bible. It's the most, it's the foundational thing, right? That God is, and then he makes us in his image. If he is in the likeness of God, Gregory says, and has been granted authority over everything on earth from God, who is his buyer? Tell me. Who is his seller? To God alone belongs this power, or rather, not even to God himself, for his gracious gifts are irrevocable. God himself would not reduce the human race, since he himself, when we had been enslaved to sin, recalled us to freedom. You could see the anti-slavery, this slavery is an institution mindset hooked into the scriptures, working its way three centuries later out through society, from the pulpit, through the churches, through the lives of Christians. As I said, William Wilberforce um, used similar arguments to argue for and to achieve, near the end of his life, the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire by saying things like he would show pictures of slaves in chains and say, am I not your brother? Okay, equality in the eyes of God, equality in the eyes of God, from the highest to the lowest. God makes us equal, he makes us all in his image, and Christ, there is no longer slave nor free in Christ. We are all, um, we are all dearly, dearly bought, all who come to him by faith. And the abolitionists in, in America in the 19th century used the same arguments um, to eventually see slavery abolished uh, here in the States, that evil. Um, and today, if you just take a step, sort of a little farther afield, um, and, and think about just human rights, uh, the, the human rights that we so take for granted that pretty much you don't have to argue for, you almost have to argue for 
not almost, but you have to argue for, hey, human rights don't just, they, they shouldn't be just assumed. They have to have a basis, and that basis is the Judeo-Christian biblical heritage. You can't, human rights don't come out of nowhere. They certainly don't come out of not believing in a God at all. Um, and so uh, you have people on that basis, like Gary Haugen, who started the International Justice Mission, who still runs it. Slavery is, some, some of us don't know this, some of us do, but slavery is actually at an all-time high around the world. There are tens of millions of slaves um, all around the world, even, even among us, um, being traded daily um, for work, for other things. And so Gary Haugen and his team at International Justice Mission, they're believers, and they have these, the same exact arguments, these biblical arguments for the equality of, of all of us and, and for what Christ has done for every man, woman, and child. And they're, they're working with local officials around the world to see um, slavery broken up and people set free. Um, but for human rights, it's a Judeo-Christian heritage. Like I said, um, human rights as we know them in the West, we think that they're a common inheritance. We just assume them, but they're not. They actually come from the Bible. And, a, and an Indian who grew up in India but travels the world today, Vishal Mangalwadi, he's written a few books, but one of them that I've read is called The Book That Made Your World. And in it, he shows, he's like, human rights don't just happen. In India, where the scriptures aren't our cultural inheritance, people don't have rights. They don't have rights. You pass someone on the road, and it's, in fact, Hinduism is, is uh, it, it's the exact opposite of that. It actually doesn't provide a basis for equal rights among all humans. If someone's suffering, and they're on the side of the road with no arms and no legs on a skateboard, and begging for food and destitution, it's because they did something, according to Hinduism, in a previous life to deserve that. And if you're rich, and you're sitting pretty, it's because you did something great in a previous life. That's, that's the worldview that undergirds their lack of human rights. And so he shows this really forcefully um, in his book. And he's not alone. There's a profusion of books today because human rights are so assumed, but they need to be argued for from a Judeo-Christian biblical grounding and heritage. There's a profusion of, of really great books, and I won't mention even close to all of, them, all of them, but Tom Holland is one outstanding example. He wrote a book called Dominion. I think it's a different title in, uh, in Britain. He's British. Dominion, the making of the Western mind. And his current story, I think, um, he's changing almost by the week. I mean, you can see him kind of inching toward the Lord. He's certainly sympathetic now. He was atheist, an atheist historian, a top-notch historian, kind of wrote popular histories. He really focused on uh, Greek, Greece and Rome and uh, some of the ancient uh, Near Eastern uh, and Mediterranean world empires, the Persians. And he was just fascinated from boyhood. He went to Oxford or Cambridge. He's an Oxford guy uh, on, on them. But he, as he spent decades steeping himself in their literature and in their worldview, he began to see them as more and more alien. And he's like, I'm, there, there are no human rights. They would just leave children out. Um, to, to be eaten by wolves and stuff that they didn't want them. And, um, and, and there was no such thing as like slave and master having, having an, an equality of standing. And he, he began to see how far removed he was from them. And he began to go, why, where, do my right, where do my idea of human rights and values come from? And he began to see, I have a Judeo-Christian biblical heritage because I've grown up in Britain, but yet I deny the authority of the scriptures and I deny the God of the Bible. And so he's, he's, he wrote this book to show that actually the West was made, and the idea of human rights comes directly out of, just like Mangalwadi says, out of the scriptures. Glenn Scrivener, I'm just going to read two, two more titles, because the titles kind of tell you what the book's about, and they kind of make my point. Glenn Scrivener, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality, and he makes the same point. And then finally, Nick Spencer, The Evolution of the West, How Christianity Has Shaped Our Values, Dignity, dignity Rule of Law, Welfare, Humanism, Capitalism, Science, human rights, atheism, 
secularism, nationhood, ethics, democracy. Um, so Peter goes on to say that if we serve and honor unjust masters and are beaten for it, this is seen, look, look, it's not just, God doesn't just go, all right, great. It's seen as an injustice by God. He sees it. He marks it. He cares. He doesn't miss it, and he cares about it. And your endurance in the face of evil and injustice with a superior work, whatever it may be, um, will do you credit with God. He will reward it. Our suffering unjustly while doing what is right is, Peter says, a gracious thing in the sight of God. He actually says that we've been called to this. He says, for to this you have been called. So it's not just happening. You've not, you've not just walked into it. Christ has called you to it to do something in you, to draw you closer to him, to make you more like him, and to bring others to know him as they see you gladly and freely submitting yourself to injustice. It's actually more powerful than outright rebellion. And that's one of the things that we see in history, and we see it even today around the world, and we certainly see it at the cross. We certainly see it in the life of our Savior, and we'll, we'll get there, of course. So we've actually been called to suffer unjustly for Christ's sake. Verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. So you see how your suffering that you've been called to is intimately and vitally connected, that word because, it's vitally connected to the suffering of Christ for you. You see that? So it gives this immense meaning, this cosmic, all-powerful meaning to your suffering, not as you just let it happen to you and complain, but as you submit yourself to God knowing that this pleases him and that he sees and that he cares and that he ultimately will bring ultimate justice at the right time, but that he's using this and he's connecting it to his own, his own son's suffering for us to save us. So because Christ also suffered for you, You've been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Bottom line, to sort of reduce this, this is a longer version of Christ's command, pick up your cross and follow me, right? There's no other, there's no second or tertiary call by Christ. But in the West, we've so strayed in the, in the Christian church in, in, in so many places, I have, from this basic simple, profound call of Christ. It is the and the only call to his disciples. Pick up your cross. This instrument of death. Death to our flesh. Death to our desires. Death to me being boss. There's one way to follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's where I'm headed, he says. Um, so, let's look at the phrase in verse 21 that's, that's profound. So that you might follow in his steps. Edmund Clowney, one of Tim Keller's teachers, uh, his words here are wonderful. Um, Peter once denied with loud cursing. He denied Christ more than once with curses, disassociating himself from his master and his soon-to-be savior. Um, but now this same Peter uh, is, is writing to the church saying, let's follow in his footsteps. And of course, we know that Peter, something happened. And we know what that something is. Something happened. Jesus did something. Jesus so demonstrated his love for Peter without condition in the face of Peter's infidelity, in the face of Peter's cowardice, because we can't do anything about Peter, that something so powerful Jesus did happen that Peter ends his life a few years after writing this letter by willingly going to a cross 
and requesting an upside-down crucifixion because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in his own words with his baby. Um, this is the call to everyone who would follow Jesus. Pick up your cross. It's the only way Christ goes, as I've said. To live with his life in you, you and I must give our lives to him. We must die. John Mark Comer, um, who wrote a book a recent, the past few years, it was great. It's a great book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He says, we look to Christ as our substitute and our savior, but, and that's, and well, we should. I mean, for a long time in the early to mid 20th century in America, the social, more liberalized, um, sort of crossless gospel became just follow Jesus, just do as he does. So there was a swing away from that, and it's now it's, sometimes it can be in conservative circles. He, look to him as your substitute and as your representative, and that's, well, we should. That's the core, the hot core of our faith. Look to him, his life for you, his death for you. But sometimes there's no, and, and he, the call is to look to him as your representative and substitute and then to follow him. And sometimes we lose that following. So our call isn't just to see him as our substitute, but also as our model, as our example. And that's what Peter is saying here. Um, Oswald Chambers, uh, so not only his life for me, but my life like his, right? And, I, and that really hit me squarely because I've, I can tend to swing so far into the Jesus is my substitute representative that I don't think about, well, actually, my life, my life ought to look increasingly like Jesus in my own context. And uh, that's convicting to me, but that's the call for all of us. Um, Oswald Chambers, a Scotsman, he said, our Lord lived his life to give the normal standard for our life. Suffering is God's tool. He uses it to make us more like him. Um, some call it the school of suffering. The school of suffering. A PhD in suffering in Christ's school is worth far more than a PhD at some high-powered academy. C.S. Lewis in Screw Tape Letters, he says this. Um, now, now, let me say this. Some of you know this, some of you don't. Screw Tape Letters is a devil writing to one of his subordinates, a junior devil. So every, Lewis said it was the hardest book he ever wrote, in part because you have to write everything backwards. And also the, the spiritual attack was, was great, but it was just tiresome to have to write everything backwards. So I may stop at points and say, this is, remember, this is the devil speaking. So if he, the enemy is God. The devil thinks God's the enemy, so things like that. So keep that in mind. This is the devil writing. He says to his junior um, colleague, he says, now it may surprise you that in his efforts, his is God, in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies, God, on the troughs, the low points in life, the hard times, even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Again, he's speaking about the demonic, right? To us, a human's primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours. By the way, that's one of the reasons when someone's possessed, a lot of times their eyes will roll back in their heads and all you can see is the white of their eyes because because. Satan comes to erase your personality. Jesus came that we might have life and to bring you fully into the person that he made you to be, right? Like salt on food. The salt brings out the flavor. It doesn't make everything taste like salt. It brings out the actual inherent flavor of that food, right? So the demon, the, the devil says, to us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy, God, Demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all of his talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. 
creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. And that is where the troughs come in. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. So think about this with regard to Peter's admonitions and exhortations and commands to this church, right? That Peter is saying, when we submit, God is doing some of his, especially to unjust governing authorities, masters, God is doing some of his greatest work to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. His power is most greatly at work. Um, he says, hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table to be consumed is what he means. And the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hands. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, talking about God, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Now here's the question, right? I've hinted at it. How are we going to live this way? To follow Jesus down this path to suffering and death to self, whether it's under unjust regimes or masters or bosses or in relationships that really tick us off. So if you look at the front of your bulletin, you don't need to, but if you do, there are two quotes on there. Usually there's one. So far there's only ever been one, but we put them together so I could put three on next week. Uh, there are two on there, and that's on purpose. The first is by one of my heroes. Um, he's in a film, part of his life is in a film that's my number one film of all time for me. Uh, he's a, it's by Eric Little, who was a Scottish Olympic uh, sprinting champion. And he was a missionary. He grew up in China, and he returned to China. Um, and, and the movie is called Chariots of Fire, as I said. And, and if you haven't seen the film, it's 1981. It won Best Picture. I enjoin you, please, please spend two hours of, of your life well and watch the movie. Um, but Little, in this quote here, he enjoins us to follow Jesus and to make Jesus our model. Now, the second, though, the second quote is by a man named A.W. Tozer, a pastor, theologian. And Tozer tells us to, quote, stop tinkering with your soul and look away to the purposeful one. So we should follow Christ, right? He calls us to. But the call is to first come and die. And this is what carrying a cross means. We can't follow Jesus as our model until he is first our savior. Because the fact is that we cannot live this way on our own strength, as we know, in our own flesh. And if we think we can, we're fooling ourselves. We can't live this way in our old man. We have to be crucified first with Jesus so that his new resurrection life comes into us by his spirit, unites us to him, and pulses through us, right? So we need to look away to be able to follow Jesus, away from our sinful selves, the life of flesh that wants everything to be about me, and I'm not going to submit, right, in my flesh at all. That's utterly incapable of freely submitting to unjust and even abusive authority. We must look away to Christ and his cross, and Christ on the cross for us. 
and contemplate his love for us. And that's exactly where Peter takes us, right? So if you think about Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters, I think I mentioned this a week or two ago, but they all, and theologians all mention this and commentators, they all have a sa- the same pattern. And they all start with uh, the indicative and they move to the imperative. So the indicative is it's a statement of fact. And what Paul always does at the start of his letters, no matter what letter he's writing to the church, he always says, here is who you are in Christ. Here's what he's done for you. He loved you when you were unlovable. He loved you when you were dead in your sins. Dead people can't do anything. You hadn't done anything for him except sin and hate him and rebel against him. And he came with no condition of your own good behavior. And he rescued you out of pure and perfect and all-powerful saving love. He gave his life for you. And we see that in the Old Testament where God rescues, he calls and makes out of nothing the Israelites who are constantly rebellious against him. He saves them through no good of their own. And then he says, after he saved them and brought them to himself, now live this way, right? Living this way isn't a condition of your sonship. And so Paul always starts his letters with the indicative. Here's who you are in Jesus. Here's what Jesus has done. He preaches the gospel. And then at the end of his letter, sometimes it's just like a chapter. He'll say, okay, now live this way. The imperative, do these things, the command. But if we try to do the imperative, live this way, follow Jesus before getting the indicative, we're toast. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done for me, regardless of my behavior, actually in the face of my sin and rebellion. Um, now, what Peter does is he flips that in this passage anyway, right? And he says, follow Christ. But then in these last few verses in our passage in chapter 2, he gives us this amazing, beautiful, and he takes largely from Isaiah 53, he gives this amazing few verses, these truths of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, and really, we, like I said, we need look no further than Peter's own journey. He tried his very hardest to follow Jesus, and what, what happened? He failed spectacularly. I mean, it's hard to be more spectacular in your failure. It was kind of like that car crash outside. It was a disaster. Hit a tree, up in flames. I mean, he didn't even know if he was Jesus' disciple anymore. Jesus said, make, make sure my disciples uh, meet me in Galilee. Peter, he had to say, and Peter also. Peter thought, I'm out. I just denied Jesus three times, and then he died on the cross. And then he rose again. Are you kidding me? Is he going to crush me? No. Um, so when it mattered most, he abandoned Jesus and cursed him, denying him three times. But Jesus hung on that cross in, in the face of what Peter did. After Peter abandoned him, he hung on that cross to the very end and finished the work of saving Peter completely. He paid for every single one of Peter's sins, and then he rose again. And then he had a meeting with Peter, and he did some heart work with Peter. And he touched on, not, not for guilt, but to have a reconciliation with Peter, to do some repair work on that shore of Galilee when he rose from the dead. He showed Peter, I love you. I know that you love me, but my love for you is what's going to change you, my unconditional love for you. And Peter got that as Jesus, rather than squishing him to jelly, made him breakfast by the sea, right? That breakfast of fish and chips um, on that coal fire on the Sea of Galilee in John 21. Um, And Jesus, free and full forgiveness, moved Peter from being, and the spirit of the living God coming inside of Peter as Peter gazed on the cross and the unconditional love uh, of Peter by Jesus. As he gazed on that, it changed him. As the spirit pushed it down into Peter's heart, and it changed him from one who denied Jesus, who couldn't even say, yeah, I'm with him, to a servant girl, to literally saying, I I will die, I will die crucified upside down gladly for him. It made him, it turned him into a lion. And that same spirit of boldness and power and life change is, is, indwells every single child of God. 
and comes into us the minute that we trust in Christ. So let's just spend a few minutes just looking at um, the point two and the last point, which is it's rare that I have only a two-point sermon, but freed from sin by our Savior. And we see in verses 22 and 23 that Peter spells out how Christ took his own medicine, right, in submitting to unjust authority. What was the key for Jesus? It's the, key, it's the key for us. It's the last half of verse 23. But continued, Jesus what? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As Paul writes elsewhere, quoting the Old Testament, God is speaking, leave vengeance to me, I will repay, says the Lord. So Jesus wasn't looking to, to squeeze justice out of the Roman authorities, out of Pilate, or out of the unjust Jews who were looking for him to be crucified and succeeded. He knew, he trusted himself, he trusted that God, his father, doesn't miss a beat, and that every single injustice will be accounted for and righted. He entrusted himself to the father. That's the, really the last thing he says on the cross after it is finished is, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? Um, what did Jesus do rather than taking vengeance on those trying to kill him or on those who did kill him once he had risen? Um, he offered full forgiveness to them, right? He took uh, God's vengeance. Instead of taking it out on them, he took God's vengeance for them and absorbed it like a sponge, like a drill of water in their place. Um, and here, as I touched on last week, we see the son doing what he had been doing from all eternity. It's not like he was doing something new. This was his character. He, from all eternity, from time immemorial, before time began, he has been giving himself gladly submitting himself, a full and equal person in the Trinity, no less than God, no less than the Spirit, fully God. He has been submitting himself as the only begotten Son to the Father out of love. That's what love does. That's what love does. Entrusting himself to his Father. And so when he came to earth, one of the things Lewis says is he came to earth, he did simply in his life and then consummately in his death on the cross, he did simply what he had been doing he did simply in the wild weather of one of his outlying provinces, earth, what he had been doing from all eternity in giving himself to us. And then when we look to him and his great love for us outside of ourselves, that self-giving, gladly submitting, entrusting ourselves to the Father, spirit of the risen Christ comes to live inside of us. So he knew that if People didn't come to hit, whoever didn't, he took the vengeance that was due others in committing injustice on him. He took that and absorbed that and paid for that, but only for those that looked to him by faith as Lord and Savior. He knew that to anyone who does not look to him, full justice, full vengeance of God against their injustice and sin will be meted out to them fully. Every injustice will be paid for. Um. So this really is a warning and a word here for governments and institutions as well as individuals. We have been given, governments have been given power, whether you've been given power as a government official, a teacher, a boss, a parent, we all have some sort of, some sort of authority. Some people are, are submitting to us in some, in some way. Um, we, are, we are encouraged greatly to use that to benefit others and not ourselves, to administer justice, to punish evildoers and not to reward them, to praise those who do good, to quote Peter. If we don't, we will answer to God for abusing our power. 
you, Jesus knew that. And he entrusted himself to his father in that way, and so should you. Um, verses 24 through 25 are some of the richest in this letter and in the New Testament. Um, they pair well with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just touch on a few things um, here. Peter says that Christ himself bore our sins. Um, the word means to carry away, to bear, right? The sense here is that Jesus picked up our sins onto himself and carried them away from us. So the image that comes to mind for me, maybe because I saw it recently on a plane, I think, is that Batman movie, part of the Dark Knight, um, Christopher Nolan series, where, where uh, Bruce Wayne takes the, uh, the nuclear bomb, and there's just enough time to take it, and not to take it away and leave it, but he takes it, and it blows up, uh, and it blows him up, presumably, um, over, is it the Hudson or the, or the Atlantic? And uh, that's what Jesus did for us, not in the movie, but in real life. He, he carried away our sin, and it literally killed him, bore the wrath of God that our sin met in our place, um, and it, so that it wouldn't damage us, but it killed him. Um, he didn't have to. They were our sins. They would have killed us. They were killing us. He took them off us and onto himself. Um, so, you know, and, and anyway, what one silly illustration that I had was the idea of that, that all, all my work, all my life has earned me one thing, and that's a poison loaf of bread. And that the second that I eat it, and I deserve to eat it, it's what I've earned, um, it's going to kill me. And uh, a Middle Eastern uh, blue-collar man uh, in his 30s uh, walks across the room, takes the bread out of my hand, and eats it himself and curls up on the floor, holding his stomach in pain and, and dies. He did it. He ate it. He did it. He bore it. He, he did it gladly for me. This, this act, this silly example, doesn't even come close to touching what Jesus did for us, but that's something of what Peter's talking about here. He did it in his body, Peter says. That is, he did it as a real man, as a full human, not as, not as God that didn't feel our pain, but as fully human, born of a virgin. Only God could save us, only man needed to. So in Jesus, God became what he was not. He became a man to die for man, to carry our sins onto himself, away from us, into his body. Um, but also I think it's, it's, it's emphasizing that, the realness of our representative and of our salvation, but also that it wasn't some magical process. He felt everything that we feel and more because of sin, like the loneliness, um, the darkness, the way that it stiffens and makes us proud and brittle and oily and heavy and cold like hunger and, and um, uh, like a sharp wind on the inside of your soul, the way that sin makes you feel, not only in his spirit and in his soul, but in his body. He felt that, and he felt it more than any of us ever have because, like C.S. Lewis says, the power of the wind isn't felt by the reed that bends down when the, when the wind blows. We, we all give way to sin. Jesus is the only human who never has. He didn't know what sin was. He didn't know what it tasted like, what it felt like. He'd never yielded to it. He's, he was sinless. And yet he didn't just feel one sin all of a sudden. He'd always stood up against it. He felt the great power of sin. He took on the sins of everyone who had ever looked at him by faith. All at once. And that, and he felt that in his body and in his soul. Um, he did it on the tree, Peter says, just to remind us, I think, of a couple things. One is that it was, it's clear from Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 that um, that if he who, according to the law, hangs on a tree is cursed. So to remind us that Jesus, he became a curse 
for us so that we could receive blessing. He took what he didn't deserve to, to give us what we don't deserve. Um, but also, Peter uses the word tree. He uses the word tree. Um, and Jesus hung on dead wood. But oftentimes, the New Testament writers, especially in the book of Acts and beyond, will use the word tree for the cross. A tree is a living thing. The fact that through death, Jesus opened up the only pathway to life is just an absolute miracle, and it's exactly what Jesus did. Through death, he killed death for us. Um, he brought us blessing. So why did he do all this? For us to get a hall pass to heaven and to go on living as we please? No, verse 24b, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. John Calvin says, but wherever it is, the death of Christ is efficacious, effective. For the expiation, that means the wiping away of sins. And also, he says, for the mortification or the killing of the flesh. Right? So Jesus wipes away our sins, but he also kills our flesh and calls us to follow him and to live for him by the power of his spirit. Finally, in verse 25, skipping over some other material, verse 25, um, we were all straying like sheep, Peter says. The question there for me is, and for us is, um, do sheep find their way back once they've strayed from the shepherd? No, the shepherd goes to get them. The shepherd is the one who rescues them. We can't take any credit if we are in Christ for being in Christ. Um, sometimes when the shepherd grabs them, apparently they bite and kick and bleat and don't want to be brought back. And sometimes the shepherd has to be forceful and tie them up and put them over his shoulders. He's doing the best thing for them. The, the, the last thing a sheep's going to do when he's lost is to come back. The shepherd left all the privileges of heaven. And he came into this wild outlying province that he had created that hated him and he bore our sins on that tree to bring us back to his father um calvin comments on how remarkable this double title of christ is that peter uses not only is he our shepherd but he's also our overseer so he will bring us back but he will also keep us that's what overseers do he will oversee your journey as you follow him as i follow him he has saved you and he will keep you this is referred to as the perseverance of the saints um, in the Reformed Church. Um, and I just want to say, do you want this this morning? Do you want to come to this Christ? Do you want to return to this Christ? He is there waiting for you, arms wide open, um, as your shepherd, as your overseer, as the one who bore your sins in his body on the tree. Um, and when we come to him, there's no more hanging on to our rights. We're his, right? Our life's been secured, even even if, we, even if we die, we are free in death. We're free to submit. We're free to suffer. So we can serve people that don't deserve to be served. We didn't either. Jesus served us all the way to death. And now through his death and in his life, we live as we look to him, right? So we can, we can gladly and freely serve the evil and the unjust who don't deserve to be served because we're doing it for God and we're doing it because God in his son did it for us. And that's a lot of times what will happen is this is a much more powerful witness than simply denouncing the world. As we serve in this way, as we submit in this way to mistreatment, people will see the power of Christ and the reality of Christ and they will be saved. They will come to him. They will start to ask questions. They will see that Jesus is attractive and that he's real. Um, on our streets, in our families, at our companies, with our enemies, with strangers and shopkeepers and those that we meet. Let me close with 
the rest of Eric Little's life. Um, a lot of people, if you've watched the, most people know about Eric Little just through the movie Chariots of Fire. But um, as I said, he loved the Lord. That's clear in the movie. He grew up in China, and he actually, he actually forsook. He was kind of like the Tiger Woods. Okay, that's not a good illustration anymore. Who's the most famous athlete now? That person. Um, he was uh, he was not the Tiger Woods. Of his <laughs> Wait, what'd you say? Pat Patrick Mahomes, the subway guy. Um, he was a super popular poster boy athlete who had this amazing story behind him. He could have written his ticket, and he was. They were a lot of people were clamoring for that for him. Um, keep running, keep breaking records, um, sell our product, whatever it was. He chose in the face of all that, the height, the apogee, it's the height of his glory and fame, and could have been a great wealth for him and a very easy life. He chose to return to China. War broke out, Second World War, ended up dying in a Japanese prison camp among Chinese. And he was glad to do it. And he, um, he submitted to injustice. He submitted to torment. He, he had a greater glory in mind. And that's far, far greater than simply winning the gold at the 1924 Paris Olympics, by the way. He, he knew what had been done for him, so he was free to give what was, wasn't even his life away. It was dearly purchased for him. And in following his Savior, his life has had so much more of an impact. I can almost guarantee you that, that film, Chariots of Fire, would never have been made if he hadn't have done what he did. Um, that's available for us. That's the call that Peter gives to the church, the, uh, the first century church in Turkey, and to the church throughout the centuries, even to our day, 20 centuries later. Um, let us run together the straight race, looking to Christ and his great love for us because he bore our sin in his body on the tree. He is our shepherd. He is our overseer. Let us submit to those in authority over us as unto the Lord not to them, because we're sub- we've submitted to the Lord and we trust him. Let us suffer well, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your glorious word. No preacher could do it justice. I certainly have not. And yet, um, just again, reminded this morning um, of all, partly through all that's happened this weekend, that your church is a miracle. The saints, holy ones, set apart, completely cleansed, made right, so right that we can actually not only stand in your presence, but be made your sons and daughters, no matter our past, no matter how much sin we've amassed, no matter how much we hated you, because of your all-purifying blood. And we're about to go think about that and feed on that again in a second, in a, in a new way, in a different way, through communion. But Lord, what a miracle it is that you've, you've done what is necessary to bring the worst of sinners to yourself. You've completely cleared the way, but there is, no, there is no other way. You and you alone bore our sins in your body on that tree, and through death you have brought us life. And life is you, Lord Jesus. And so because of that, we can have the security that we are dearly loved, and we know who we are, we know what's been done for us, we know whose we are, and we know where we're headed. We can submit and serve even those that... Um, that don't deserve to be served and that are unjust. And I pray that you would bring many to Christ through it. I pray that you would make us more like Jesus in the process as we, as we look to you, our Father, and trusting ourselves to you. And, and it's in your name we pray.